Hello, everyone. Welcome to Nexus on Mario Cooper and Black HIV movement history, a program brought to you by the County Narrative Project, or CMP. I'm Charles Stevens, and I'm your host this evening for this program. Over the next hour, we will have the opportunity to unpack, explore, and interrogate the legacy of Mario Cooper. We chose today for three reasons. One, because it's Black History Month. Two, because it's the day after National Black HIV Awareness Day. And three, because today is Mario's birthday. A bit about CMP. CMP is a love letter to figures such as James Baldwin, Bayard Rustin, and Essex Hemphill. We hope that CMP will not only be a tribute to them, but an organization and institution worthy of their legacy. We believe that Black gay men deserve an organization built not just on deficit and pain, but on joy, on beauty, and collective power. To say a bit about our work, CMP, CMP believes that part of countering the narrative means shaping public memory. We want HIV movement leaders to know that Black people have always been a part of the HIV justice movement from the beginning. We want them to know that they stand in an incredible tradition of leaders and it is through our elders and through our ancestors that our work today is made possible. It is because of Mario Cooper and so many, many others that my work is made possible, that the work of CMP is made possible and the work of so many black gay men is made possible. To frame our conversation this evening, Mario Cooper, to invoke the words of novelist Toni Morrison, he crowned us. Mario crowned us. When we stand up for what we believe, when we say the courageous thing that needs to be said, when we stand up against racism, when we stand up against injustice, Mario paved the way. So we don't have to feel alone. We don't have to feel afraid. We don't have to feel ashamed because our way has been paved. And with that, tonight, we will not merely celebrate Mario Cooper, but seek to understand, learn, and extract the beautiful lessons he has to offer us. Let me also say that though Mario was a great man who did great things, remembering his greatness should not mean forgetting his humanity. Let me repeat, remembering Mario's greatness does not mean forgetting his humanity. Access to institutions, even the most powerful institutions, even the most powerful people, even the most powerful positions, even the most powerful credentials for black gay men is not a shield. So please take part in our discussion. We invite you to use the chat function to share your thoughts, share your reactions, to express yourselves. Later in the evening, we'll open up our discussion for questions and we encourage you to use the Q&A function to pose questions to our panel. And finally, I wanna thank Susan Wolfson and Sean Strube, who first told me about Mario Cooper and answered my millions of questions about him. Special thanks to our panelists this evening, Ronald Johnson, Dr. Maurice Franklin and Dr. Richard Marlink. And I wanna thank the Cooper family for trusting us with part of Mario's legacy. And thank you, our audience this evening, for joining us, taking time out of your schedule to share space with us this evening. And to help us this evening uh, explore and unpack all of, all, of what, all of what this means and all of what we're here this evening, I have this incredible panel here with, with me. I'd first like to introduce Ronald Johnson, who's my former boss at AZ United. Um, after a career spanning over 40 years, Ronald S. Johnson retired at the end of 2017 as the Vice President of Policy and Advocacy at AIDS United. He continues to consult with AIDS United as a Senior Policy Fellow. Johnson spent the latter half of his career responding to the HIV epidemic starting in 1984 as a volunteer with the Gay Men's Health Crisis, GMHC. 
Johnson has served on numerous boards of nonprofit agencies and was a member of the Presidential Advisory Council on HIV AIDS from 96 to 2001. He currently serves as chair of the steering committee for the US People Living with HIV Caucus and treasurer for the National Black Women's Advocacy Coalition, Ronald Johnson. Dr. Maurice Franklin. Dr. Franklin lectures and consults on organizational sustainability, strategic planning and corporate development strategies. Dr. Franklin has previously served as an advisor to former mayors, Mike Rawlings, Bill Campbell and Marion Barry in Washington DC. Dr. Franklin has chaired public sector appointed committees on health, poverty and community development. Franklin published academic works are rooted in participatory action research nonprofit leadership and management and institutional sustainability, resilience and long-term sustainability strategies. And last but not least, we have Dr. Richard Marlink. Richard Marlink is a medical oncologist, the founding director of Rutgers Global Health Institute and the inaugural Henry Rutgers Professor of Global Health at Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey. Dr. Marlink has authored numerous peer reviewed works in virology, epidemiology and clinical science. However, he's best known for his advocacy and on the ground solutions to improve the health of populations without access to quality healthcare. We can all give some virtual love to this incredible panel that I am in awe of as we, as we uh, commune. Um, to just kick us off, the first question I like to throw out, and, um, and I'm sorry, let me uh, also just frame the discussion. So we're gonna have some initial question Q&A with the with the panel just among us, and then we're gonna open it up to the audience for questions. Um, there is a Q&A chat, a Q&A feature um, that you um, will see at the bottom right of your screen. So if folks have questions, we ask that you put your questions in the Q&A um, portion, um, but of course, feel free to still react in the chat. All right, so our first question is, and this is really for, for each of you, could you tell me about the first time you met Mario Cooper, the first time you met Mario Cooper. Maybe I should jump in because I'm the, I have a quiet story about the first time I met Mario Cooper. Um, so I, I was at Harvard, I uh, was the executive director of the Harvard AIDS Institute. And we had an international advisory council, which covered a lot of people to advise us. And I had two people on the council, um, a uh, activist gay member uh, from LA that said, you got to meet this guy, Mario Cooper. You got to get him on the council. And, and then uh, a diamond, um, uh, merchant or uh, Maurice Templesman, who basically knows every president in the uh, in Africa and helps um, uh, helps us develop th our programs in Africa. He also said at the same time, you have to meet this guy Mario Cooper. Um, so these two diverse members of our International Advisory Council. Uh, convinced us that we should ask Mario to join us uh, in, on our council. And uh, um, that began a, a, quite a relationship at Harvard for Mario with us. And um, um, that, that was, that's, that's my story in terms of meeting Mario through quite diverse recommendations from, um, from, the left and the right and the, uh, the old and the new, but. Um... I'll jump in next. I, I met uh, Mario uh, in the early 90s when I was working at SCLC. I was an openly gay staffer at, at Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And um, Mario and I would talk from time to time about strategy. Usually uh, he would talk to me about uh, things I hadn't considered. He was, for me, um, I called him my unofficial godfather because he knew everybody and could strategize with me about different things I hadn't even thought about. But when I really got to know him was when I moved to New York City um, because 
uh, we would have these impromptu meetings. He'd call me. I lived on 139th Street and Mario would call me and I'd have to get in my car and my old beat up <laughs> car and drive all the way down to Union Square, find a place to park and pull two um, Dalmatians out of the car because I had two dogs because he wanted to see the dogs. We'd come down and I'd wait for him uh, and he'd come out of the place where he lived. He'd come out of his apartment, walk across the street and we'd sit there and we'd talk sometimes for hours. Um, it was usually him asking me questions about life. Uh, you know, what do you want to do with your life? You know, um, you know, what, what is, what's your purpose? You know, these kinds of questions, things that I hadn't really had someone older talking to me about. So he was guiding me around. What's your next job? What do you want to do? Uh, what impact do you want to make? Um, and so for me, Mario was, uh, that's how we met. And, um, you know, the relationship that I had with him was really um, uh, that of a, a guide, a big brother, uh, you know, he was constantly providing me with advice. I, uh, <clears throat> I first met Mario when I was working in New York City in the mayor's office as the citywide coordinator for AIDS policy. And Mario had approached me about to talk about the overall issue of mobilizing a response to HIV, AIDS, as it was playing out in the black community and the disproportionate uh, and devastating impact that it was having. And in particular, uh, Mario uh, and I spoke about his wanting to get black leadership, the established black leadership uh, more involved in, uh, in the AIDS crisis. AIDS was not getting the attention or, and specifically AIDS among black people and in black communities was not getting the attention of the media overall and was not getting the attention within the black community. So uh, Mario, over the course of several telephone calls and meetings, we were talking about that and he was talking about the Leading for Life uh, campaign that he was developing. Uh, and I had the uh, privilege to be invited to that October meeting in 96 that was held at uh, the Harvard AIDS Institute. This is actually a great segue for my next question to uh, Rick, but uh, could you tell us, Rick, about Leading for Life and that, and that initiative? Well, as, as Ron alluded to, um, we had a sort of summit meeting at Harvard with over a hundred um, leaders, uh, African-American leaders and, and others that were uh, invitation only. The, the, the great thing about Harvard um, is it's a convener. You know, if somebody says you're invited to, to do something um, and Harvard wants you to come, so people will least listen. But uh, Mario realized this, I think early on and agreed to join us way before the October uh, meeting that, that Ron is talking about in 1996. So it took about uh, almost a year to plan that, which was bring together um, people that uh, could make a difference, but may not be responding the way Mario thought they should be responding. The, the head of HHS, the head of CDC, the um, others that said uh, we're African-Americans, we're leading these responses, but we're not really responding to something that's coming up and affecting our community. Um, so uh, he dreamed up this, uh, um, you know, let's bring African-American leaders in a private sense, bring them together uh, to talk about this so that um, the, you know, no cameras are running. Uh, we could we, we could get down to um, discussing things in a concrete way of why is this not happening? Um, uh, so he, he dreamed it up and brought in uh, everybody from uh, Phil Wilson and others on the that were already involved in activism on the um, the, uh, the side of African Americans and and 
HIV community responding to others that weren't responding um, in the government. Uh, so um, brought them together in a private way to kind of say, we're in this together and we have to figure this out. Let's don't call everybody out. Let's just, let's figure this out together. Why, why isn't this happening? Um, and I think the, the end result, if you have to put some sort of um, monetary value on something is uh, that, you know, the um, Congress then passed $156 million to at least respond in some small way um, to uh, focusing on the African-American community in relation to HIV. But that obviously was not enough, but it was at least the beginnings. It started the beginnings of talking about this on a national level. Well, historically, uh, you know, there had been a meeting um, that had happened 10 years before um, that, uh, Richard, that, that, that uh, kind of got the ball rolling around um, black leaders and the federal government and CDC. I think that what happened with Leading for Life in 1996 was a continuation of a conversation um, and really a sort of a reinforcement um, uh, of, of the urgency that we needed our leaders to, you know, to really um, uh, invest and be committed both, in, both structurally in the federal government, but also institutionally and culturally within the, within the black community that we needed everyone to be pulling in the same direction. And so, I think that um, sort of his influence uh, in uh, 96, he had the ability to, you know, bring people like Phil Wilson together, but also bring elected officials and those like Dr. Poussin and others into the same space at the same time to begin to talk and unpack what are the challenges for uh, in, within our community, cultural challenges that were, you know, preventing us from, you know, from really aggressively uh, addressing this issue, similar to where we are right now with COVID, you know, which I thought was just, a, 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 just an amazing parallel. Mario in, in the New York Times article had talked about the fact that the leadership um, in the community had kind of was not, ha had not got in front of HIV and AIDS in a way that was really uh, going to structurally, systematically be effective in our community, you know, which is the parallel to this right now. I think leadership is way ahead, but the community is way behind. And so it's, that's where we are right now with COVID. But I think that, that he made a good point was that um, as a community, uh, the leadership was wagging the tail around HIV and AIDS. Thank you. Uh, that kind of gets me to the next question. And Ronald, I would like for you to, to weigh in here, but uh, could you speak to what you would say current HIV movement leaders can learn from Mario Cooper's legacy? Um, what can current today's HIV movement leaders learn from Mario Cooper's legacy? And Ronald, if you could weigh in on that. Thank you, Charles. I think for me, one of the things that I would cite of what the today's HIV movement can learn from Mario is the importance of what we call today an intersectional approach, uh, and also the difficulty of implementing uh, that intersectional approach. Uh, Mario readily saw and experienced directly the impact of HIV and AIDS on the black community and black people. Uh, and he felt very strongly that the response to AIDS must be a part of the overall response of among black people for social justice and equality. It was, it was, there was no separation in my view of Mario of the AIDS crisis and the civil rights crisis and the issues that we as black people faced. But immediately or almost immediately, there was that disconnect between the established black leadership and its participation or response to, the, to HIV and the AIDS crisis. So dealing with that, uh, I think, and the as I said, the importance of it and the difficulties in, in implementing that and that we cannot readily assume that the various components of an intersectional approach want to be interconnected. Uh, and we have to be assertive in making that happen 
on all sides. And that's a, a lesson that I certainly have gotten uh, from uh, Mario's, uh, his life and legacy. And I hope the broader movement can, can see that uh, from Mario. If, if I may jump in, Charles, and just say it's about social capital. I mean, Mario had access to power. He had influence and he was unapologetically black and gay, but he was also very clear about his access to power. He could go places that other people couldn't go. And he was not afraid to open doors to let others into those spaces. I think that that's the lesson um, for, for everyone. Uh, that's, that is the lesson around being unapologetically who you are. You know, uh, we only have today, we don't have tomorrow. And to use, you know, whatever uh, breath you have and whatever influence you have, you know, you know, sort of the old Western credo of uh, doing the most you can for all the as many people as you can for as long as you can. That's what Mario did. He was really, he felt that call and the urgency, perhaps because of, you know, the circumstances of his own life, but also because he was wedded in blackness and, and within our community and our culture. And so uh, his, he exercised his power. That's the Mario Cooper that I knew every day, that he was not afraid to exercise his power. He could pick a phone up and call somebody and get somebody to do something. That's the lesson, use your power. I shared in uh, my opening remarks that one of the things that makes CNP unique is that we see ourselves as standing at this sort of intersection between public history and public health which looks like uh, in one manifestation, you know, our commitment to excavating movement history. Uh, you know, there are so many of us that don't know the amazing contributions that, that Black people have made to HIV movement history, that we've been there from the beginning. And my question, uh, particularly to you, Ronald, and to you, uh, Dr. Franklin, is how can we, as a movement, better institutionalize our movement history, our collective memory. You know, I would argue that collective memory is a structural intervention and that it's a, a definitely a part of, um, you know, restoration. And so um, how can we as a community, and you know, there are many examples of certainly models, but from, from your perspective, like what are some ways that we can better um, institutionalize the, the contributions of black folks, particularly to HIV movement history? I'll start. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think, first of all, this conversation that we're having tonight is in and of itself a, a marker or an example of what we need to do. Uh, we have to be able to be more intentional in highlighting and our, our narratives and creating uh, our narratives that and documenting our, our histories and uh, the role that we have played. Uh, a lot of the black leadership, particularly in the early stages, years of this epidemic, uh, that, that history is, is vanishing. Uh, and while some of the people are still around, we have to, to speak to them. We have to, whether it's oral history or writing it down, we have to capture that because so much of the learnings and the accomplishments that we have achieved in the fight against AIDS was done by black leaders and, and reaching out and teaching how to reach un, so-called unreachable populations how to talk about AIDS uh, in the, the Black community, uh, how to talk about sex uh, when no one wanted to talk about sex, drugs, all of these issues. Uh, and the, the fact that Black people were there cannot and should not be forgotten. And we need to call out when we see histories that ignore the contributions of Black leaders, we need to call that out. And but not only calling it out, we have to document our histories and and make them known. So so Ron Johnson is in the pantheon of black gay leaders who have been unapologetically that and what he just 
offered, I completely agree with. Um, I, but I would add this one thing in the sense of the, um, the paradigm of, of when we don't see each other, you know, so that, so that, that there's a value uh, that we can learn around the, the impact that institutional racism has created, not just on Black America, but within Black gay men as well. So we, you know, so we're dealing with some of the same systemic issues around identity and culture. So, so that's, I think, part of our challenge. Um, uh, certainly, uh, oral histories are important um, and uh, we need to be really, because many of us are be, you know, fading out really soon, either through death or, uh, you know, you know, all, all through death. Uh, so it's really important that we get these stories told, um, that we should be creating um, archive projects and um, essay projects so that we can begin to tell those stories. Um, every uh, one who's been involved in this movement, you know, uh, we should be getting to them now with video and a mic for them to tell their stories. Um, and at least we can have a place for them to, to, to at least house those stories until something better comes along. So for me, the Calendar Project is the perfect place for that. Um, so for now, I think that's what we have. Those are the tools that we have until others start writing books and start publishing more books. But, um, you know, working with universities uh, to create uh, not just um, sort of the intersections around a sexual identity and, and, uh, and, and gender and, you know, culture and race, but we need to create, you know, special programs that focus on uh, the lives of, of black gay men. Uh, we, we, you know, there are very few institutions around the country that are, I mean, there are intersections. Intersectionality is a big thing right now. It is important, but, but our stories are, should not be lost in the mix of intersectionality. Thank you. Uh, we have one more question before we open it up to the audience. And that is, mm, Mario, without question, rose to the absolute heights of power. We've talked about this a bit during this discussion. He rose to the absolute heights of, of, of power, but toward the end of his life, he struggled considerably. He struggled. And I was wondering if you could share any insights or lessons or perspectives you have about what it means for someone to have both this sort of meteoric rise um, to the heights of power in this, in this country and then toward the end of their life, just uh, you know, really kind of struggling substantially, just any insights you can offer about that. And what's it feel like everyone. to be so visible and all of a sudden be invisible? I mean, for me, um, Mario, um, that was the Mario that I was, got to know the, the best uh, in, in the sense that I spent a lot of time down on, on Union, at Union Square in the park because he wouldn't let me into his house. And I, at first I didn't understand why he wouldn't let me into his house. And then when I learned why he wouldn't let me into his house, I would call friends that I thought had, you know, could talk to him, but they didn't have that same vocabulary that I, I didn't have. I didn't know how to talk to him about depression and mental health issues, um, but I could get him out of the house. You know, I could get him out of the house. Um, and as I said earlier, I think that, you know, that he was walking on such a high tightrope that there were very few people that could have, you know, really been able to reach him in, in, at the depth that he was, that where he was, I could not. Uh, I didn't have the vocabulary. Uh, to reach him, but but I could get him out of the house and we could talk and I could see him petting my dogs. And of course I'd cry all the way back uptown at Caulfield, cry about it, you know, because Mario to me was um, a superhero. But, you know, I'm now at that age, <laughs> you know, where, you know, some of the things, same things that, you know, Mario suffers with, I now understand, you know, as, you know, someone who deals with depression, I understand what, what, where he is now, where he was. And, you know, it's a struggle every day, you know, to, to, stay, to stay present with yourself. So I think it takes the community uh, to address those, to begin to address those issues. Support networks are important, but, you know, you know we're human and we're also fallible. So that does not, I don't want to, uh, no, I guess that is the most important part of, you know, uh, 
of leadership is that we have to allow leaders the space to, to be human. It's tough to, um, Mario is open about his issues, uh, but also as, as Marie said, uh, private in terms of, I've been to his house only maybe two or three times. And it, it, again, it was very protective, but at the same time, he's such a, um, uh, in his functioning world, such a strong and clear voice and such a behind the scenes catalyst, not worried about his own um, uh, legacy or situation, um, that you were just drawn to him, um, you know, as someone who um, was doing things for the right reasons, um, but also was dealing with his own um, issues as we all are. Um, but his were dramatic and, and chronic and he, he worked on them, but we all felt the frustration. I think that Maurice just talked about is how, how do we um, help someone that's um, uh, by the, the nature of his um, state was isolated. No matter what he did, he's going to be isolated because um, he had a a, a chronic um, a chronic illness. Um, so we all try to we all try to help. We all are being involved, but um, uh, but it doesn't lose track of what he accomplished. I mean, unbelievable! <laughs> I wish I could accomplish what he did. You know. Um, uh, unbelievable in terms of the, I call it the puppeteer, you know, he just said, figured out, as Marie said, this is where I can operate and this is where I'm going to make a difference. I think that's what we all have to do in our own lives. Where can, where can we operate and where can we make a difference? I think in a broader sense, it also, because I knew Mario from the, the public perspective, the public Mario, and he was an icon in that respect. But it, it also, his issues also see what are our responsibilities in supporting our heroes, our leaders, how can we support they're taking care of themselves and, and to even legitimate that, that support. Too often we see our leaders as being infallible and we want them to be infallible. Uh, and that is too heavy an expectation to put on our leaders and, uh, because they like all of us are fallible and we need to recognize that and, and support them. Here's the thing. Here's what I really loved. I want to, that when I'd go visit Mario, it was that that South Alabama accent, you know. And you know, my my family's from around sort of that area, New Orleans, Oklahoma. And we just start talking. And and because he's like a big brother, he just there some of the questions he would ask me, I would just smile because it make my hair stand up on my head. But I was glad because I I want to talk about that kind of stuff. And so he gave me permission just to be silly because we were silly with each other. You know, we talk about, you know, the beans and cornbread that I was gonna cook when I got back home and I got my grandmother's recipe and it's gonna be really slamming, you know, and he'd just laugh and talk and he might, you know, get me going just to say more things. And then he'd just shut it down because he got to go, you know, but I just, at that point, that was kind of the way we would interact with each other. So I knew that we'd see each other, we'd have a high level conversation and then we'd get silly he might pet the dogs or he might not that day. And then he got to go. And then I kind of, I didn't want him to go because I wanted to talk more. I mean, the longer he was outside, the, the, the better I thought it was. But, but, we, but, but, but he, he was silly around me. We got to be silly with each other. And I appreciated the fact that, you know, the great Mario Cooper and Maurice Franklin were silly. We got to be silly whenever we were with each other. So. Uh, that's what I loved about him. The accent, 
I was so glad when you showed the video because it brought all of those voices back to me, you know, and it just reminded me of, you know, how he would talk to me, this slow draw. That was Mario. Thank you so much. And again, if we can give some virtual love to, to our panelists for sharing their stories and perspectives. I think now is a good time, uh, Johnny, don't you think, to open it up to the audience? I know we have, looks like the, the question box is just lots of, lots of good questions in there. Johnny, do you wanna, you wanna open it up? Um, thank you all so much for your questions. We're going to get to as many of them as we can. Um, so I'm going to start at the top and work my way down, Charles. And this one is from uh, Daniel Driffin. Try not to be too mad at us. We're going to do the best we can to get I do want to bring in a comment before I jump into this question. Um, and, uh, and the first comment I want to bring in um, is, I believe, from, let me see, Michael Mitchell. Um, it's listed under Mark King, but I believe it's Michael Mitchell, right? And listed as this is an important this this important conversation is in a, in a historical document, and I hope it will be preserved. Thank you so much for that that comment. Also from Christopher, we have great commentary. Thanks for this wonderful panel. And from Andrew, uh, from Andy, hey Andy, uh, thank you for this conversation. Andy. So I wanted to bring in those comments. Um, and thank you all so much for, for being here. But our first question from Daniel mm -hmm. Driffin, what are some of the lessons or practices that Mario used, but that are not being currently used with HIV or COVID? Why don't we have uh, Dr. Franklin answer that one? Wow, I, you know, I, that's a great question, uh, uh, Daniel Driffin. I appreciate that question. I don't, I, I just, quite honestly, I don't know. Uh, what his particular uh, what practices he was using other than he was using his power. You know, Mario, you know, was his own institution in that regard. So there was not an agency connected to what he was doing. Mario just, Mario used his influence. And so, you know, you know, he used his social power. He used his access. You know, he had, uh, you know, um, uh, came from an influential family and he, and he understood that and he used his influence. He used the power that he had. Uh, and I think that if that's a lesson that we could all, uh, we could all learn from that, no matter what, what spaces we're in, you know, whether we be from Paul's Valley, Oklahoma, where I'm from, or, you know, you know, or, you know, in the, in the White House, you know, use whatever power and influence you have to make change and make it make a difference. Johnny, you want to give us the next question? I want to bring in a question from Michael McCarthy, who's asking, well, statement first, the HIV epidemic is one example of inequities in awareness, response, and healthcare. Now, 40 years late, the coronavirus epidemic has underscored those inequities are underscored. How do we engage today's Black leadership to address these inequities, the systemic racism in the healthcare industry, and champion the change that is required? Ronald, would you like to take that? <laughs> Thank you. I, I mean, I think that is a, a, a an issue that Mario dealt with, uh, and we all have been dealing with, uh, is that how do we in engage that? Uh, I, I think particularly with, with this past year that we've been through, uh, this horrible year in many respects of uh, the pandemic, uh, the, the blatantness of the racial inequities and the response, I, I'm optimistic to the point of thinking this will be another step in engaging the black leadership uh, and other uh, communities in, in confronting uh, the, the structural inequalities and, and making those connections. I, I, I said earlier, the intersectional uh, aspects. So, but I, I think we have to, we in the community, uh, whether what, our role in the community has to can make those issues 
keep those issues alive and, and, and really confront our leadership, and I'll, I'll use the word confront deliberately, that they have to be engaged in the realities of the community. I think for me, Mario saw that disconnect between black leadership and the, the struggles and realities of the community. Even when black leaders you know, are of the community, there was still that sometimes that disconnect. And I, I think what we can do today in the answer to my answer to uh, the question is continually to hold those issues up and to continue to hold our leaders accountable. Uh, we can't let ourselves off the hook of, of dismantling the, the structures of inequality and inequities that you know, just have been made continually so blatant. Uh, so holding our leaders accountable is something that I would say that we need to do. Just to piggyback on that, I think there are some similarities between, you know, 40 years ago in HIV and AIDS and, and today with COVID. What, what, we, what, what I've seen, and, uh, you know, I'm actually working on a, a piece right now on social equities, but inequities, is that uh, the systems uh, that are, are asked to respond have fewer resources, number one. Uh, so we're asking the same uh, organizations that are dealing with HIV and AIDS or community-based organizations, those that engage in the communities to do more with less resources. So, so that's part of the problem. And also the, the systems is still a top-down system. And, you know, it's the same system that was existed 40 years ago with HIV and AIDS that, you know, maybe perhaps pick leaders and then ask them to do certain things that they don't have capacity to do. And so it's not engaging in sort of the, um, the, ground up level of engagement. And so we're, you know, again, trying to address an issue, an epidemic that's probably going to hit African-Americans even harder this summer if we don't get, you know, vaccinated and get people to trust in the system even more. So we're right now we're dealing with social inequities and vaccine hesitancy, distrust in the medical system, and distrust in dis institutions. Uh, about where we were 40 years ago when, when we're talking about HIV and AIDS. And so we're, the community still distrust uh, the government and those and those systems uh, that, you know, providing resources in some ways to our community. If I, I could jump in on a tangent, Charles. So uh, Sean Strub put into the chat, I think uh, that on a tangent addresses this is he said Mario used every resource available to him. He leveraged his family, personal, professional relationships. To be Mario's friend was to be doing your part in whatever way one could. He had no other agenda in his life except to make that difference. And um, I think Ron said the same thing, the call to action for African-American leaders. Maurice is saying, you know, basically get busy now. Um, like we got, people got busy um, with HIV, um, which we still need to get busy. But uh, I think that maybe that's Mario's call is do what you can um, and, um, and call our leaders to task. Um, this is the time to lead, <laughs> uh, whether it's to, you know, pay attention to this epidemic that drew um, the, the have and the have nots in our society even farther apart and the needs even farther apart. We need leadership now to, to, to bring, bring it about, to make this not happen um, in the next year and, and then in going forward. Um, so I was just trying to bring attention to Sean who knows Mario very well uh, to bring attention to what he put in the chat. <clears throat> And um, a question that has gotten a lot of, uh, I'm sorry, I'm a little close to my mic. A question that has gotten a lot of um, likes is from Justin Smith. And um, can you say a little bit more about Mario's ability to convene black leaders? It seems as though that remains a challenge today. And I'm wondering if the panel, uh, 
could chat a bit more about the, his secret sauce <laughs> that could help us younger Black HIV activists who are trying to pull Black leaders together around HIV today? Thank you so much for that question, Justin. I have a quick response in terms of leading for life. I think he, he envisioned that as a safe place for leaders to come. Harvard is a place that people will convene and they'll listen to, if you're invited to a meeting at Harvard, you probably will read the invitation. But uh, he also um, constructed it that was private, that, that leaders could call each other to task, but it was totally private meeting. Um, so uh, you won't see any transcripts, you won't see anything, but people called each other to task saying, why are you running the CDC? Why are you running HHS? Why are you um, in this position and you're not dealing with this problem? He, he wanted that to be a private conversation so that leaders could um, realize that it was, it was time to do something rather than, um, whatever the issues were in, in public. In private, he set it up privately so people could, could think about it and, um, and also call each other to task. So, so one of the reasons that I convened uh, the Black Gay Summit for, for, for at Brown University was sort of the antithesis to what Mario did in 1996 was, and I told Mario this uh, several times that I thought that the leading for life at Harvard was classist and that it thought it was elitist and that, that uh, they needed to have more different people in the room. And so um, if, if there was something that we could do um, different or to do it moving forward is to make sure that, that, that we have a, a meeting spaces that include sort of the makeup of our, all of our community. Um, you know, if you wanna have a, a, a meeting and I don't care what institution where you have it, but, but you know, think about, you know, the 300 people that you have in the room, you know, you need some grassroots people in the room, you need people that have influence in lots of different spaces. And I always felt that that space was um, a little, um, not, not the kind of space that I would want to, 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 uh, to reimagine, I would, I would reimagine it, but I wouldn't want to do that space again. I think it was a one-time private conversation as you said, among people that were already running the established organization. So it was classes. But um, as a Brown graduate and as a Harvard 30 year employee, I can say maybe that's the difference between Harvard and Brown. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> no, I totally agree with you, Maurice. It, the conversation needed to be much broader. I think he realized okay, I've been asked to be on this Harvard you know, council, I could bring together the head of CDC, the head of HHS, the, um, uh, the secretary of labor. I can at least, these are people I know, I can bring them together and have a private conversation. But it was, it's, it was very uh, elitist or focused, you're right. I, I also, I want to acknowledge the, the challenge in Justin's question. The, the challenge that we face today uh, in, in bringing leaders, black leaders uh, around uh, on HIV, whether it's HIV or other, other issues. Um, and I'm challenged, I'm, I'm talking about doing things virtually when we can have the kind of private conversations and closed door conversations that were so important uh, and that Mario was uh, very skilled at uh, bringing about. Um, this past December, we had through an effort called United We Rise, a, a forum by which we were bringing people together and, and, and leadership. And I, I think that is uh, another step in the kinds of efforts that Maurice uh, talked about and leading for life. Uh, we have to continually to do that and occasionally reinvent how we reach out to our leaders. So while I don't think there is a, a magic bullet question uh, to Justin's uh, response to Justin's question, 
I, I think the challenge that is there is one that we definitely need to, to recognize and, and ask and attempt to answer every day because we've got to get this right. We've got to do it. Uh, the, the urgency is, was there 40 years ago in terms of HIV in the black community. The urgency in all of those issues are still here. So how do we engage our leaders? How do we develop the leadership that we need? I think we might be ready for our last uh, question for the panel. <laughs> I see we're about at time and I wanna be respectful. Um, if you could just each reflect on what is one thing current movement leaders today can take from Mario's legacy? One thing that current movement leaders today can take from Mario's legacy. I'll start by citing, citing Mario's recognition of the political dimension of, of issues and the need to uh, find a, a political response and a, a response in the political arena, not the only arena of certainly, but I think Mario and what I particularly learned and appreciated from Mario was that sense of, of the, the politics, small p, uh, in how we need to deal with the crises and issues that confront us. I, I agree with Ron. Um, how you use your social capital, how you, uh, you know, sort of develop the kind of collateral that you need for your movement. Uh, which includes, you know, op opinion leaders and small p politics, and and so that it's really important how you, how you assemble the kinds of um, of influences and leaders and thought leaders that support your your social cause or issue. It's really just a uh, I would say just kind of a, a a hobby or an idea, and so you can find other people that's going to support your social cause. So, uh, uh, you know, to me that's capital. You know, those are those resources, you know, but that's capital. So developing the kind of political capital and collateral that you need in order to move your agenda. Yeah, I, I would just add overall, uh, as anybody who crossed Mario's path knew that uh, he taught people how to just do the right thing. <laughs> just do the right thing. That should be the focus and everything else should fall into place. But he, I think, uh, taught me come back to the, um, the notion that if you do the right thing, um, then you'll be okay. <laughs> well, with that, I just want to thank you so much again.